what's going on, y'all. And thank y'all all so much for joining us here on Milted Expanded Perspectives with me, Cam Hale, and milting along with me, es mi amigo, Hot Philly Filson. How's it going, everybody? Yes, I'm here in <laughs> Skeleton Studios. Blazed. It's blazing hot outside. I feel sorry oh. for all the guys that are out there roofing. Everybody I feel working. sorry for the guys Ooh. out there mowing yards. I feel sorry for the gals out there on the golf carts, you know, selling drinks to the guys that are playing golf. I don't even know how they, how do they keep the grass so green this time of year? Water. Oh, well, I know, but like, water, man. I mean, the amount, the amount of water. <laughs> It must take. Obscene? And I don't know about where you guys are living, uh, where you're listening to this from, but where we live, there are golf courses everywhere. Like, I don't understand how they stay in business. Yeah. Like, just yeah. in our county alone, there's probably 12. It's yeah. like, it just seems like a lot of waste of water because, you know, they're building all these new homes in the county we live in. And I'm constantly thinking, like, they can, how many of these wells can they drill before? Uh, yeah. You know, like, you start putting restrictions on the it. Like, water enough table problem. is enough. Hey, listen, I have been on an Indiana Jones watching binge at my house. We've been on repeat nonstop. Go ahead and tell excited. them right now. Tell them right now. What? It's playing on the TV in the background in the studio right now. Oh, yeah, that's it. But I'm saying it's been on at our house. Luke and I have been going ham on it. The new one's you about to ready? drop. I'm ready to go see it, man. I know that we've already got the date pl- uh, picked out and planned. I can't wait. I know it's not going to be as good as the early one, so I know there's a lot of haters out there. But listen, give the guy a break. Harrison Ford, the He's fact He's 116. That, the fact that he can still make the movie, I got to take my hat off, and I, I got to go see it. I just have to because I have to complete it, right? But the first one- is the best this one. one here. We are watching. Yes. The furry the first one the Lost is still, Ark's my favorite. You know what? That's what shows even as a youngster. I was like intrigued with history and things yes. like that, you know, and that's what carries over today. So we talk about treasures, lost treasures, things like that. I love those types of stories. But uh, speaking of finding things that are lost, the tragedy that Uh-oh. happened around the Titanic, I feel oh, so sorry for yep. those people that lost their lives. But we, we often forget because it's not outer space and things like that. But man, when you go to the depths of the ocean, it is a very dangerous space. And it can be something simple that's not even somebody could even plan for. Just one malfunction, an O-ring here goes bad, a seal here goes bad, and it's 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 lights out, folks. Uh, it's a very dangerous thing. Some of you may have forgotten it, but I haven't. You know? I think about the terrors of the ocean every night when I lay my head on my pillow. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I <laughs> every know. night. Every night. I know. Like, no, that place is terrifying. There is nothing. Look, I love the idea of all the lost, like, history that's under oh, the yeah, waves. yeah. And the possible UFOs and all that stuff. I'm not going to look for it. I don't want to know what's out there, right? Like, uh-uh. That stuff, it, I'm terrified of that place. I am, too. It's uh, <clears throat> very, very scary. Speaking of scary, I Uh-oh. have an interesting story for y'all. Check this out. It Hit says, me. I am a big outdoorsman from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I am a short outdoorsman from Weatherford, Texas. So, of course, when I decided to go to college, I had to keep in mind that having some decent woods nearby was a must. Upon checking a couple of places out, I decided going to Edinburgh, University of Pennsylvania, or just the borough. The biggest plus about going to that university is that my uncle Fred lived up there and was a well-known name in the community. He owns some property to this day. He also owns a framing shop right in the middle of the small town area. This was a huge plus since knowing people like that always equals more land to put spots in. That's all I really needed to pick the college that I would be going to. Edinburgh is really cool because there are a lot of old buildings and strange flat landscapes as compared to the hilly land around Pittsburgh. 
so it was cool to have to figure out how to scout the game I'd be going after once the season started. My main hunting area was directly behind my uncle's house. He has a beautiful log cabin that sits back off the road with woods on all sides of it. It was a true thing of beauty. When he had the house built, he actually had the gigantic chimney made of flat stones that were found in the woods behind the house. More on that later. As I was scouting the area for the very first time, I came up on a few different circles of boulders in the middle of the woods. They were definitely very old. The boulders were quite large, much too big to be just moved there for some reason like a group of guys camping out. They must have taken 10 men to move them, and only if they had some kind of pulley system or something of the sort. There were also smaller rocks, and when I say smaller, I'm talking like somewhere around 300 pounds or more, making inner circles inside of the large boulders. It was pretty crazy. I found a total of seven of these stands throughout the property. Some of the rocks that were there were now part of this chimney that my uncle had built. They simply had to be with the amount of rocks he used on it. Oh, also, these rock circles also made a much larger circle around the woods. After a few more days of scouting with my buddy Brandon, we were sure we had all of our spots picked out for the first day of archery season. We couldn't wait to get out there. It was a perfect day, too. It was great. The thing about Edinburgh, Pennsylvania, is that it gets more snow per year than most of Alaska due to the lake effect snow coming across Lake Erie. What happens is before the lake freezes completely over, the water, which is warmer than the air, pushes the clouds way up into the atmosphere, too high for them to actually snow due to the low temperature all the way up there. The clouds then come inland and fall back towards Earth. It takes them about 20 miles to do this. Edinburgh is about 20 miles from the lake. You see what I'm saying? Anyway, on the first day of archery, which is the first week of October in Pennsylvania, there was a thin layer of snow. Now, this is perfect for archery because you can see the deer in the woods much more easily, and you can also see if any animals have left any tracks. If they did, they were fresh, since the snow didn't happen too long before the hunt. In our trees, for about two hours or so, neither of us had seen anything yet. I'd just gotten off the radio with Brandon, who was on the other side of the property. When I see some movement over my right in the pine thicket, I then saw a branch move a little bit, and I saw four deer legs under. I readied my bow and my stance so as to make a good, clean shot at the deer. Around 15 feet up in a tree, I did this very carefully. About a minute later, I was looking for any movement. I lost the four legs inside of the thicket. This was expected due to the fact that where the deer would have been is a common feeding area for them. So I just waited. Maybe another minute later, I caught movement again. It looked as if the deer would break through the thicket into the more open woods. The moment I've been waiting for. As I brought the bow up into a full draw stance, I was stunned by what I was seeing. Where the deer should have been, there was a man. A strange looking man at that. This absolutely should not have been. If there was a man anywhere near where the deer had been, the deer would have been long gone and spooked back into the thicket. 
I put my bow back down onto the hook that I had screwed into the tree and lifted my binoculars to see it with my eyes. At only around 35 yards away, I could now see great detail of this guy's physical appearance. He was rather rotund and his belly leading the way. A white long sleeve shirt on with ruffles down the middle of it, just like a pirate's shirt. Just like the one in the episode of Seinfeld, if you guys watched that show. It was tucked in to thick canvas brown pants, with pants being tucked into white socks directly below his knees. Further down where his shoes should be was absolutely nothing. He had no feet whatsoever. No calves, no shins, no shoes. With my eyes wide open, I mouthed to myself, what in the hell? Instead of walking, he seemed to float through the woods, going from right to left. This is when I started noticing other extremely strange things about him. I looked through binoculars, and I stared at his head. It was cocked back, with his chin resting down on his lower neck. His very large, red, bulbous nose up in the air a bit, and sort of a snobby overall look. <coughs> the hair, though the hair, it was covered by a wig that judges in England used to wear. A white wig with three curls on the side of it, where his ear would have been. I noticed that he didn't just seem to float through the woods. He was floating through the woods. His arms stayed stuck at his sides, unmoving as he traveled. He also never looked down. The way his head was cocked, he could have only been looking upward. This is not any person or animal like that walks like this in the woods, constantly looking down and around for obstacles that you might trip over. All of this happened within a time period of maybe 20 seconds or so. He came out of the thicket behind a medium-sized oak tree, and then when he hit the next oak, he never came out from behind it. I watched in absolute astonishment for another five minutes, waiting for him to break his cover so I could see him again, but this never happened. I told Brandon what had just happened and was immediately made fun of. I expected that I was going that that would, would be coming through the radio after I got ta done talking about it. He was saying I should have taken a picture of the only deer human minotaur remaining in the world. I told him he won't be laughing when the deer retar came over to his tree stand and smacked him right out of it. Even though it was in the middle of the hunt, I had to get down to see what the heck just happened. I knew where he would have walked. Not only would I see footprints in the snow, but it would have been also very easy to see even tracks of any kind in that area. Even a hummingbird would have left tracks on that finely fresh snow. As you probably guessed, when I got over to the spot where he had been, there was not a single track from him or a deer, or anything else that lives on planet Earth. I was utterly amazed. What happened later that night was just as creepy. The scary stuff didn't even begin yet at this point on that fateful night. Now, after I got done checking out the muddy, snowy ground where the man should have left some kind of sign or footprints, I went back to my tree stand and climbed back up to the height that I had been hunting from earlier, around 15 feet. I radioed Brandon and told him that I was back up in the tree and I was secure. We always did this as a precaution in case something happened while we were climbing the tree or securing the platforms of the portable tree stand. We hunted the rest of the day, but not without periodic ragging from Brandon making fun of me about my deer throughout the rest of the hunt. I knew I'd be hearing about it for at least a week or so, if not longer. 
That is, of course, if the rest of the night would have been a normal one, which it turns out was not. As twilight approached, I radioed Brandon and I told him I was going to start getting down and out of the tree. Brandon was actually in the built, in a built stand that we had found while scouting in the months prior. So I had to meet, I had him, I'm sorry, meet me at my spot due to the fact that it was going to take me much longer to get my stand down and off of the tree. Just as I thought, Brandon was walking up to my spot, right as I was getting to the bottom of the tree. Once I got all the way to the bottom, I unhooked the straps that were around my feet. I jumped down to the ground and started feverishly explaining to him again everything that happened. I took him over to the muddy area to show him that there were absolutely no tracks in the snow or the mud. I definitely could sense that he didn't completely believe everything I was telling him. I was able to sense this so easily because he looked right up at me with his mouth agape and his eyebrows pushing up towards the middle of his forward and forehead, I'm sorry, and said, are you kidding me, brother? He also was able to tell that I wasn't messing with him when I looked at him with what I'm sure are some of the craziest eyes he's ever seen and said, hell no, man, I'm not messing with you. When he finally realized that I was 100% serious, he started taking inventory of all the things I had previously told him, and we went back and forth trying to make any sense of what I had just seen. While we were talking to each other back and forth, we had failed to notice that nighttime was already upon us. It was that Stephen King, full dark, no stars kind of night, too. Due to the fact that we were looking for signs left behind from the ghost guy, we were in a patch of woods that we weren't very familiar with. We may have been pretty close to where my stand was, but once night falls in the woods, it's a whole new ball game. Still, the patch of woods we were in were enclosed by a triangle of roads. All we had to do was walk in a straight line, and eventually, we'd come out somewhere on one of those roads, and then we could just walk that road back to my uncle's house. So, we started walking. Walking in a straight line in the woods is almost impossible to do without a compass, which I didn't have. So we were both figuratively and literally in the dark when it came to where we were. A couple of minutes into the walk, we heard a loud scream, as if someone was being murdered. Now I know what every animal in the woods around here sounds like, at least normally. We're in a panic mode making death cries. I see videos often on YouTube of people recording a sound in their backyard, and they think that this is a person who needs help, only to find out later it was a rabbit screaming from being attacked by some predator like a coyote or a fox. But this, this was not that, not at all. After waiting a couple of minutes to see if the screaming would continue, we started walking again in the direction we thought we should be going. We didn't talk much about that at the time, but what, what we had just heard, probably because of the anxiety we were both starting to feel. We couldn't ignore it for long, though, because we heard another long, blood-curdling scream. It was closer this time, and sounded a bit different. At first, we thought it sounded like a woman being attacked. This new scream sounded threatening. Ironically, we felt like we were the ones being stalked and hunted at this point, but still we pushed forward. After walking about another hundred yards, we came across something very strange. Directly in our path were these weird, clear, gelatinous masses on top of the leaf litter. Now, I'm 32, 
which isn't an age that necessarily screams wisdom from experience, but I've been in the middle of the woods for as long back as I can remember. My old man taught me everything there is to know about the weirdness around us. So take it from me, those clear globs should not have been there. The only thing I could think of that could even slightly look like it was tree sap, and this absolutely was not tree sap. I poked one of the masses with a stick, fearing what they might have been made of. I had read a story about a town that had clear, gelatinous globs of rain fall down on them. A lot of these people got very sick, and if I'm not mistaken, I think a couple of them even died from it. So needless to say, I was taking precautions. Their consistency was that of thick gelatin. Like if you made jello with only one cup of water instead of two. Once again, we started walking. We started to come across a good amount of this stuff. It was all over the woods. Instead, it was directly in front of us as we walked this time. Almost like someone or something knew the route we would make and marked it with these globs. Then another scream, this time even closer, and with a little something added in. This time, not too far away from us, we heard leaves rustling and a couple of twigs snapping. Something was definitely there. It could have been a deer, but this was unlikely. Whatever it was wasn't spooked of us at all. Not from us or the threatening screams. It's easy to tell when you've spooked an animal and they start running. On top of that, most of the leaves were still very moist, therefore not making as much noise as they normally would. This sent our anxiety level through the roof. At that point, the only thing that was on our mind was getting the hell out of there. We were no longer curious about floating men, screams, or alien jelly. We just wanted out, which should have been very soon. The distance we walked should have come across a road by now, but it hadn't yet. Stranger, still, we couldn't even see any houses or streetlights at all. Still, we just kept walking, thinking that we'd eventually find our way out, and soon. This was not to be, at least not yet. Our flashlights were now beginning to die, so we were definitely in a hurry, which, by the way, is not what you should do if you were ever even maybe lost in the woods. Cool heads always prevail in that situation. Anyway, as we were walking, we started to see a couple of pine trees. This was very strange because we had thoroughly scouted this land. The only pine trees were over near my stand where we started. After seeing a couple more, we started to get a foreboding feeling, almost like a sick, anxious panic feeling. We stopped for a minute to check our surroundings and found that the exact spot that we stopped was the same spot that we started. We were standing right next to a pine tree with a dead pine next to it that had a broken branch off and dangling still from the severed limb. How could this be? We had been sure that we were walking in somewhat of a straight line, but that must not have been. An, it, that must not have been, and it was an impossibility since we. There's no way we could have made a circle, but somehow we did. We had no idea whatsoever how this happened, especially since we were in the exact spot that we started at. Also very strange, we saw my tree stand that was still hanging on the tree. It was very close to us, but we, when we started to walk out, it was nowhere to be found. We walked over to it and immediately found the trail that we had t to take to get out of the woods. It led directly back to my uncle's backyard. The trail actually went right past the live pine tree that we had just been standing under. So there's no way we had missed that in the beginning. 
To add more to the strangeness, as we walked only about 20 yards down the trail, we could plainly see my uncle's light that he had above his garage to illuminate his driveway. Our minds were blown, but at least we were able to get out. On the last hundred yards of the trail, we found more clear gelatin globs directly down the middle of the pass. This was definitely crazy because they absolutely were not there when we walked in that night. We had both been on that trail when we entered the woods. We would have seen them for sure. We heard no more of the screams after the time we heard the rustling of the leaves and the twigs break, but we had a strong feeling of being watched when we were still in the woods, and an even stronger version of that feeling as we stepped into my uncle's backyard. Now, this is at the top of my list for scariest experiences in the woods. I have absolutely no explanation for any part of it. Not the floating ghost guy, not the screams in the woods, or the globs, or even the getting lost and seeming to be in an endless time loop. I would love to hear from anyone who have had anything like this happen to them. There has to be some kind of answer, and I can only wonder if it has to do with the circles of boulders that I originally found while scouting. Thanks for all you do, Peter. Wow, now that story... Wow. That's ha- Faye, baby. That's the f- whole gambit, right? Missing time. Uh, you can't. You, everything goes quiet. There's oh. no stars. There's no sounds of crickets. No matter how hard you try, you walk for an hour. You end up in the same spot. You do it again. You end up in the same spot. Like you can't get out. And then later, you just walk thirty yards. You can see a direct line of your uncle's house. Faye, hundred percent. The ghost. Faye. The ghost reminds me of the guys when we were on Ducks Unlimited show yep. when we saw the ghost walk by. This. It looked like a like a seventeenth. Not, like 17th century pirate or something, 16th century, 15th century, you know, the way he was with the white wig Gosh, dude, and that's the uniform, crazy. but he saw no legs. So it was like a ghost or an apparition, but the screaming, what is that? It's, it's like, like you a said, British sailor just drifting through the darkness. It's like you said though, about Faye is dude. like, it sounded like something was jacking with them. That's always the story. Every bit of it sounds like Faye. It sounds like you got caught up in something that maybe it didn't even know you were there. You know what I mean? Like at first, that's kind of what it feels like. Like you just kind of got caught in the fold. And then as you start scrambling is when you realize, like, I can't get out of there. That's a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying feeling. And yes. You know, just you don't know what to do. And the more oh. you get worked up, then your flashlight's dying. You're, it's an archery season, so you only got a bow and arrow, which aren't very effective in the dark. Heck, they're not very effective in broad daylight with me. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. so... I mean, even when I go bow hunting, I'm strapped just in case. Right? Man, like, that's wild. I'll deal with the uh, the forest ranger later if something happens. Right. I'm not taking any chances. Speaking of chances, let's take a break. And when we get back from the break, I'm going to be talking about some children who ended up killing. Stick with us, folks. You're listening to Expanded Perspectives.
it's uniformly understood that murder is among one of the most terrible crimes a person can commit. In many cases, we struggle to come up with what would cause a person to perform such heinous acts. Was it temporary insanity? Was it rage? Was it jealousy? Was it revenge? Or was it a crime of passion? Understanding and coping with murders committed by adults can be extremely difficult for even the most intelligent people. But when a child commits murder, the crime becomes all the more terrible because it challenges our most basic ideas of innocence and humanity. Seasoned law enforcement professionals, judges, and prosecutors all have a difficult time dealing with killer kids. Unfortunately, children are capable of virtually every kind of murder that adults are, and surprisingly, murder committed by children is not as rare as you might think. On today's show, we'll be exploring some of these incredibly frightening stories about murder committed by children. These stories, unfortunately, are real. Our first story takes place back in March 1943 in Clarendon County, South Carolina. It involves the youngest person ever executed in the United States in the 20th century. The boy, George Junius Stinney Jr., has become a symbol in the modern American debate over the death penalty itself. What some don't know, especially for those listeners in other countries, is that in America, not every state has the death penalty. Only 31 of the 50 states that make up America actually have the death penalty, and 19 have abolished it. Now, my home state of Texas has executed more inmates than any other in the Union, with 474 since 1976, followed by Virginia with 109 and Oklahoma with 98. Many of the states that do support the death penalty actually give death row inmates with an execution warrant the ability to choose how they will meet their end, which is too convenient in my opinion because their victims were given no such luxury. For example, death row inmates may choose electrocution in Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Kentucky, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. Gas inhalation in Arizona and California, and even hanging in Delaware and Washington, and a firing squad is allowed in Utah. Again, Texas doesn't give death row inmates a choice of how they will meet their demise. In fact, Texas doesn't even allow the inmate to choose a last meal before execution. But back to Stinney. He too wasn't given a choice and was killed by electrocution. And many people are still outraged by his execution today. People are still working to clear Stinney's name and get him a pardon, even though he was executed almost 70 years ago. 
On March 22, 1944, two young girls, Betty June Binnaker, age 11, and Mary Emma Timms, age 8, were out riding their bicycles looking for flowers. This was something the girls did every spring, and you do have to remember, it was a simpler time back then, a time when kids would go out for hours without parental monitoring. Sometime during their quest, they passed the Stinney property and noticed a young boy and his sister standing in the yard. They asked George and his sister Catherine if they knew where they might find any maypops, which is a type of flower. The young girls were never seen alive again. Hours later, when the girls had not returned from their excursion, their parents became concerned and decided to call the authorities. Search parties were organized with hundreds of volunteers. Stinney, like most people in the community, joined in. The search continued throughout the day and night. And early the next morning, their bodies were found in a ditch filled with muddy water. Both had suffered severe head wounds. It appeared that they had been beaten to death with a heavy railroad spike. At the time, the media didn't say whether the girls had been sexually assaulted or not. American news outlets didn't start reporting details of such crimes until decades later. Stinney was arrested a few hours later and was interrogated by several white officers in a locked room with no witnesses aside from the officers. Within an hour, a deputy announced that Stinney had confessed to the crime. According to the confession, Stinney, who weighed about 90 pounds and measured 5 foot 1, wanted to have sex with 11-year-old Betty June Binnaker and could not do so until her companion, Mary Emma Timms, age 8, was removed from the scene. Thus, he decided to kill Mary Emma. When he went to kill Mary Emma, both girls fought back and thus decided to kill Betty Jane as well. He used a 15-inch railroad spike that was found in the same ditch a distance from the bodies. According to accounts of the deputies, Stinney apparently had been successful in killing both at the same time, causing major blunt trauma to their heads, shattering the skulls of each into at least four or five pieces. The next day, Stinney was charged with first-degree murder. Several reporters described the town's mood as grief and transformed in the span of a few hours into seething anger, with the murders raising racially and politically charged tension. Not surprisingly, racism quickly reared its ugly head in the case. Shortly after Stinney's arrest, a lynch mob formed and moved on the jail where he was held. Deputies saved Stinney from being lynched by moving him to Columbia, South Carolina. Stinney's father was fired from his job at the local lumber mill, and the Stinney family left town during the night in fear for their lives. The trial took place on April 24th at the Clarendon County Courthouse. Jury selection began at 10 a.m., ending just after noon, and the trial commenced 
at 2.30 p.m. Stinney's court-appointed lawyer was 30-year-old Charles Plowden, who had political aspirations. Plowden did not cross-examine witnesses. His defense was reported to consist of the claim that Stinney was too young to be held responsible for the crimes. However, the law in South Carolina at the time regarded anyone over the age of 14 as an adult. Closing arguments concluded at 4.30 p.m. The jury retired just before 5 p.m. and deliberated for 10 minutes, returning a guilty verdict with no recommendation for mercy. Stinney was sentenced to death in the electric chair. When asked about appeals, Plowden replied that there would be no appeal, as the Stinney family had no money to pay for a continuation. When asked about the trial, Lorraine Binnaker Bailey, the sister of Betty June Binnaker, one of the murdered children, stated, Everybody knew that he'd done it. Even before they had the trial, they knew that he'd done it. But I don't think they had too much of a trial. Local churches and the NAACP and unions pleaded with Governor Olin D. Johnston to stop the execution and commute the sentence to life imprisonment, citing Stinney's young age as a mitigating factor. There was substantial controversy about the pending execution. Many people were for it, while others were outraged that they would sentence a child to the electric chair. On the morning of June 16, 1944, a year in which 120 other convicts were executed in America's prisons, George Junius Stinney Jr. began his last walk on Earth at 7.30 a.m. He carried a Bible under one arm, and he was escorted to the electric chair by prison guards. Stinney was of slight build. The teenager weighed just over 90 pounds and stood 5 foot 1 inch tall. Since the electric chair was designed and constructed for adults, the attendants had a difficult time strapping him firmly into the seat. The mask that fitted upon the face also did not fit properly. Witnesses to the execution included Betty June's father and brother Raymond. Stinning refused to make any statement when given the opportunity by prison officials. It was reported that the force of the electricity caused the mask to slip away from Stinney's head, exposing his face to the gallery. Witnesses, it was said, would never forget the horror etched on Stinney's childlike face in those final moments. He was pronounced dead less than four minutes later. The day after Stinney's execution, June 16, 1944, a small three-inch article appeared in the state newspaper, which contained the following line. Stinney, 14 years and five months old, was the youngest person ever to die in the chair.
Which brings us to our next story. A murderer can be quite frightening, but a serial killer is downright terrifying. Most people, when they think of a serial killer, they think of Ted Bundy, or Jeffrey Dahmer, or John Wayne Gacy, but not a 13-year-old boy. That's right, you heard me. Craig Price was only 13 when he first killed, but it wouldn't be his last. In most cases, legal technicalities and loopholes help child killers walk free. There's one notorious child killer, Craig Price, the serial killer known as the Warwick Slasher, who's been kept in prison because of such technicalities. Incredibly, Price is not serving time for the three murders he committed when he was 15 and the murder he committed when he was 13. He only served five years in reform school for those crimes, in which he stabbed a mother 60 times and her two young daughters 30 times in their home. Instead, Price is serving 25 years in prison for assaults on prison guards and a contempt of court charge that comes from his refusal to undergo court-ordered psychological evaluations. The Nightmare began on September 4, 1989, when Marie Bouchard and her daughter, Mary Lou Bouchard, came to check on Joan Heaton, who lived in the Buttonwoods area of Warwick. Heaton was Mary's daughter and Mary Lou's sister. The two were worried because they hadn't heard from Joan or her two daughters for days. When they entered the home, the two discovered that inside of the house was splattered with blood. Worse, they soon found the bodies of Joan Heaton and her two daughters, 10-year-old Jennifer and 8-year-old Melissa. All three had been stabbed to death with knives, probably taken from the kitchen. Melissa had been stabbed with such hard force that a broken knife was found still lodged in her neck. An autopsy indicated that Joan had been stabbed 60 times and the children 30 times. Police believed the murder had been committed three days earlier during the Labor Day weekend. They and residents noted the similarity to other murders two years earlier that of Rebecca Spencer, who had been stabbed to death in her living room with a packing knife. Like Joan Heaton, Rebecca Spencer had been stabbed 60 times. The police began looking at any evidence or clues they could use to find the murderer. One boy the local police were more than familiar with in the area was 15-year-old Craig Price. Price was well known by the police he had been arrested numerous times for things like burglary, the selling of drugs, and even being a peeping Tom. The police interviewed many neighbors in the area and noticed something a little odd about Price when they began to question him about his whereabouts during the Labor Day weekend. He fidgeted and often looked away when being questioned. They also noticed a large cut on his left hand. When they asked about it, the police didn't buy his answer. They believed he was lying. They asked him to come down to the station to answer some more questions, and when he arrived, 
they hooked him up to a lie detector, which he failed, and the detectives decided to get a search warrant from the judge to go and search his family home. Surprisingly, they found a large amount of evidence in a shed behind the house, including bloody knives stolen from the Heaton home, bloody clothing, and bloody gloves. Price was arrested and taken to the local station house, where he eventually confessed to the Heaton murders. Price admitted that he'd broken into the Heaton house with the intention of only robbing it. He claimed he didn't know that anybody was inside until he encountered the residents. Price then admitted the violent nature of the crime. He admitted to biting one of the girls in the face and hitting Melissa over the head with a stool. The testimony made Price sound fairly inept. He claimed he didn't realize he had left a trail of bloody footprints and he accidentally stabbed himself during the attack. The forensic examination of the crime scene lent credence to Price's story. After the Heaton confession, the detectives asked Price about the Spencer murder. To their surprise and disgust, Craig admitted that he too had killed Rebecca Spencer. The most outrageous aspect of the crime was the sentence that Craig Price eventually received. On September 21, 1989, Judge Carmine R. Patrio sentenced Price to just five years in jail, even though he had confessed to four brutal murders. Instead of prison, Price was sent to the Youth Correctional Center at the Rhode Island Training School. In other words, Craig Price would only serve five years in reform school for the brutal murder of four people. He was also ordered to undergo psychological therapy while at the school. Craig Price did learn one thing while he was at reform school. How to work the system. How to escape punishment. He refused to go along with the psychological treatment because of the Fifth Amendment in the Constitution, which bans self-incrimination. Rhode Island residents became outraged when the press reported that Price's lenient treatment and impending release. Mary and Mary Lou Bouchard were among those leading the efforts to block this release. Their efforts were successful. The Rhode Island State Legislature passed a measure called the O'Neill Bill, designed to give the state attorney general's office the right to keep mentally ill teenagers institutionalized indefinitely. This all proved unnecessary, though, because in June 1994, Price was indicted for an assault and extortion because of threats he made against a correctional officer, a legal technicality that blocked Price's hopes of release. Many child killers avoid punishment because of a legal technicality. It was just such a technicality that kept Price incarcerated. He had refused to comply with Judge DiPatrillo's order to undergo a psychiatric evaluation. That meant Price was technically in contempt of court. Evaluations were performed by many psychiatrists who couldn't even determine if he was telling the truth or not. The evaluation was followed by a trial for assault on October 3, 1994. Price was convicted of extortion and simple assault three days later. 
Incredibly, this time he was sentenced to 15 years to be served in a prison for adults. Eight years of the 15-year sentence were suspended. The absurdity of the situation was, Price couldn't be imprisoned for four murders, but he could be sentenced to years in prison for threatening a corrections officer. Once in the prison, Price got into even more trouble. He was convicted of assault again and sentenced to another in jail after biting a corrections officer finger off in 1996. Craig Price is still in prison for crimes committed behind bars in 1996. He was sentenced to another 25 years in prison for contempt of court. Seven more years were added to that sentence for assaulting a corrections officer again. In 2001, Price was sentenced to four more years for another assault on a guard. Now serving, in Florida, of course, he could get out as soon as February 2022. Which leads us to our next story. Psychopaths are among the most dangerous individuals because they can easily disguise themselves as normal people. Brilliant psychopaths can even figure out how to fool and trick psychologists and psychiatrists and other experts into thinking they are normal when in fact they are deeply disturbed. Psychopathic child killers usually learn how to work the system and fool authority figures early on in life. A typical example was the teenaged London poisoner, Graham Young, who managed to convince the chief psychologist at Britain's top mental hospital that he was reformed. The psychologist released Young, even though he had killed his own stepmother with poison and tried to poison his father, sister, and uncle. Once released, Young started poisoning again and eventually killed two co-workers. The Young case proves how easy it is for psychopaths to manipulate the system and how dangerous they really are. Englishman Graham Young is unique for young teenage murderers because of his choice in weapon, poison. This is a rare choice for murder especially among young killers. Many authorities claim that Young was perhaps one of the scariest serial killers because he tried to poison almost everybody around him, including friends, co-workers, and members of his own family. Much like the Iceman, Richard Kuklinski, he started out poisoning random strangers just to see the effects. He eventually figured out the doses 
and successfully killed his own stepmother, and he tried to kill his father and sister. Young grew up in North London during the late 1950s and early 1960s. One of his true loves was chemistry. Of course, he had his own makeshift laboratory and a rather large chemistry set where he experimented on concocting his own poisons and other dangerous liquids. He tested some of these out on local pets and squirrels, but soon became bored with those. Graham was an intelligent boy and a brilliant student. Of course, his highest marks were in what else? Chemistry. He loved to experiment. However, his experiments showed the work of an evil mind. He made many poisons, flammable liquids, bombs, and other caustic liquids. To see if his poisons worked, Graham started giving them to his classmates at school. Frighteningly enough, by the time he was 17, Graham had accumulated enough poison to kill 300 people. He used it in other ways. When his friend, Christopher Williams, scheduled a date with a girl Graham liked, Williams conveniently got sick. That enabled Graham to take the girl out instead. Fortunately for the other kids at Graham's school, he decided to start poisoning his own family. Graham Young's most horrendous experiment was to poison his own family, including his stepmother, Molly Young. She died in 1962, but Graham, he was never suspected because he talked to his dad into cremating his stepmother's body. The family thought Molly had died of complications from an accident. Instead, Graham had poisoned her with a colorless and tasteless heavy metal, thallium. Other members of the family were next, including Graham's uncle, John, who got sick at Molly's funeral. Graham had apparently poisoned pickles set out for the family members to eat. Uncle John recovered, and the next victim was Graham's father, Fred. Graham started slipping toxins into Fred's beer while he was at the local pub. Some people think that Fred Young may have suspected Graham, but failed to turn in the 14-year-old to the authorities. Instead, it was Graham's chemistry teacher, Jeffrey Hughes, who alerted the police. The police arranged an interview between Graham and a career expert, which was in reality a police psychologist. The psychologist talked Graham into telling him about his hobby. The interview led police to uncover several stashes of poison Graham had stored around his home. Graham Young was eventually convicted of poisoning his father, his sister, and Chris Williams. The court sent Graham to Broadmoor, a maximum security mental hospital, and recommended that he not be released without the permission of Britain's home secretary. The stay at the mental hospital only made him worse. He became a devoted Nazi and even figured out how to poison another inmate that he particularly didn't care for, a man named John Berridge. Over time, Graham managed to actually convince psychologists that he was a model prisoner and he was now cured. In 1970, prison psychologist Dr. Edgar Udwin stated that he was now cured and recommended that Graham Young be released. Udwin 
claimed Young was no longer obsessed with poison or violence. In reality, Young was simply lying to Udwin. A nurse who worked closely with Young heard a different story. She said she heard that Young said he planned to kill one person for every year he had spent at Broadmoor. Graham Young walked free in February 1971 and returned to North London. Once he got home, he didn't seem changed at all and started poisoning again within one week of his release. Shortly after, Young moved out into a youth hostel. A fellow resident, Trevor Sparks, began experiencing mysterious cramps, pains, and diarrhea. Doctors couldn't find a cause for Sparks' problems, but they never checked for poison. Sparks survived, but another man may have died because of Young at the time. Another man at the hostel reportedly committed suicide because he couldn't stand the intense pain he was having in his gut. The pain started after the man drank a beer with a young man that sounded a lot like Graham Young. So now, out and free, Graham needed a job, and what better job for a person consumed with poisons than a job working with photo processing. Using a letter of recommendation from the ever-gullible Dr. Udwin, Graham Young got a job at a photo processing company, John Hadland, LTD. The company employed toxic chemicals in its photo processing, and Young's job involved working with those substances. Shortly after Young started working at John Hadland, employees mysteriously started coming down with an illness, just like his family members had. Many of them developed severe diarrhea and stomach pains after Graham Young politely fetched them a cup of tea. On July 7, 1971, one of Young's co-workers, Bob Eagle, died. The cause of death was listed as pneumonia, probably caused by the burns to his throat from the acid in Graham Young's tea. Young showed his concern and even went to Eagle's funeral. The mysterious ailments were blamed on a virus, probably because the John Hadland employees and their doctors did not realize Graham Young's true identity or his past. When the police were called in after another death, Young began to fall under suspicion. After only looking into it shortly, the police arrested Graham Young on November 21st, 1971, and he quickly admitted everything. He even bragged about committing the perfect murder, the killing of his stepmother. When he was tried for murder, Young told the court he was proud to be the first person to use thallium in a poisoning case in Great Britain. He was convicted of two murders, two attempted murders, and two accounts of administering poison. The press labeled Graham Young the teacup poisoner and the St. Albans poisoner. He was sentenced to four terms of life imprisonment without parole. So it appears that even youngsters are capable of committing the same heinous crimes as adults. What drives certain people 
despite their age, to want to inflict harm on others? Is it a question of nature or nurture? Perhaps we'll never know. What is known is the terrifying fact that either through premeditated planning or even an accidental shooting, murderers seem to be getting younger and younger. Back with expanded perspectives, wow. terrifying tales. Yes, scary killer kids. It's crazy. These things, uh, you know. I know that a lot of people are big fans of true crime shows, and there's a dozen, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens. That really took off the true crime stuff dude. of true crime out wow. there. Yeah, but for whatever reason, it's like for me, it's interesting when it comes to the children doing it. Right? It's yeah. like some kids. You know, it's, what do you want to say? They're just born bad. It's just bad blood. Look, like, I hate to say it, but it always makes me think about like we have already covered multiple times about kids with past lives. Yeah. No, you're Could, right. I mean, evil's got to be reborn, too. Yeah. And, you know, it always makes me wonder, right? Like, is that part of it? Because that's something people don't want to talk about. But I mean, like, is that part of it? Is that something that could happen? No, well, you know, there's a lot of discussion when it comes to nature and nurture and stuff. But everybody listening to the show, you know somebody when you were young that you knew that dude was going to be a bad person. A bad And later scene. in life they were, and you're like, yeah, it is not a surprise. Yeah. Like, we, you just knew. Like, there were signs. And if you don't know anybody, you're that person. <laughs> no, and then I've, I remember a kid that was like a real pain, like a real bully in the third grade. And then, like, by the time... We graduated high school and even into his 20s when I saw him. I mean, he was the nicest person ever. Yeah. It's like some people grow out of it. Like, it's just a thing. You know, you never know what's happening at home. Maybe his brothers were picking yeah. on him all the yeah. time and taking it out. Maybe mom and dad were fighting all the time and then they got a divorce and the house got better and then he got better. Well, then it's you one know, of those things. Maybe he started taking jujitsu and he was humbled. Yeah, right. There's we lots don't know. of things that'll happen, right? Well, and like you pointed out, it's one of those deals. As I've gotten older, you realize you're, you become less judgmental as you did when you were younger. Oh, yeah. Because you learn, like, man, everybody's going through something. Like, everybody. everybody has some kind of something. All of us have a sack of rocks to carry. Some are just heavier than others. Yeah, but I think about it all the it time is. when something happens, and then you'd be like, man, I never, I thought that guy had the perfect life. I had no idea in yeah. the background. <laughs> it's, yeah. You know, he had a meth problem and all this other stuff. Shh, don't tell everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I have, Lon sent us this. And he knows, of course, I love Lon. This is the greatest. There is a possible Glimmerman phenomena experience near Greensboro, North Carolina. Tasha, grab your camera. Get up there. Get a look. Here we go. It says, I live near Greensboro, North Carolina. The date that this incident began 
was June 18th of 2022. Micah Hanks don't live too far from there. He does not. Two weeks after moving to this address, I witnessed trees in the park behind my home moving as though there was a huge, heavy being moving from one tree to the other. What do they call those walking trees? Walking trees? No, no. Treants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It says, but I could not see any visible being, though I know that this movement was not caused by the wind. Since then, I have seen a variety of strange, unreal things that I would never have imagined ever seeing in real life, except on sci-fi films. I've tried to take photographs of these anomalies, but nothing is ever captured. I've used a digital camera and an old Polaroid, but to no avail. There is something outside in my trees, and it's not squirrels. I can feel them watching me, and I've seen their neon green eyes staring back at me from inside of the thick tree cover where they try to hide and blend in with the leaves on the tops of these trees. Something is definitely wrong here, and it really has me frightened. I know something has come into my home and assaulted me with scratches on my back and left a blood-red scab at the base of my skull. It was as though it was punctured with a sharp object such as a needle. Aliens. Mm-hmm. I'm convinced that the government and other officials in this community know about the activity. I collected some hair evidence that I know is not human. The hair is too thin and wispy, and the color is, is a greenish hue. I don't know what to do. Someone suggested that I reach out to you so I won't lose my sanity. I never in my wildest dreams would have ever imagined these things to actually be real. It's difficult for me to accept the reality of it. Please contact me so I won't feel so alone in this madness. Thank you, Kay. And Lon writes this as a note, y'all. Says that I have been conversing with this witness off and on for a few weeks. She wishes that the evidence that she has collected, which I have seen, be held in confidence. Though she did not give me permission, or though she did give me permission to post her original email. I do believe that she is experiencing unexplained and anomalous activity and that this could be a glimmer man phenomena. If anyone in the area has had similar strange activity, please contact me, Lon. So if any of y'all are in and around the Greensboro, <laughs> North Carolina area, or if you in your neck of the woods have had something similar to this, let us know. Let Lon know. Let's jump on her and figure out well, some of this. I know that they don't know what to do. The first thing I would do would be uh, contact your local realtor, and I would be moving. <laughs> true story. I mean, it's one thing uh, to see a predator-like glimmer man in the tree. I would like to see that. That's pretty cool. But if it's coming in your house and inserting needles at the base of your skull, that's not good, folks. Like, get out of there. Like, even if you're going to take a loss, sometimes you just got to chalk it up as sometimes a Sometimes it's just worth it. I don't know if you. I don't know if you have to put that on your seller disclosure or not. That you have Glimmer Man in your backyard. In the backyard, but uh, yeah, I would get out of there. I would at least try to get like a priest to come over, I need do a house blending, and a young priest. blessing, because yeah, they will do that. Like you can go get some Russian Orthodox priests to come over and do some blessings of your home. Are the Russians the only one tough enough to go out there and bless the Glimmer I Man? I don't know, but that's. Right? I mean, I'm Russian Orthodox, so that's the only one that I've had blessed our home. So that's all I know. I'm only speaking from experience. <laughs> Uh, you know, they have the sensor and the holy water and everything and get you some sage. Like, do whatever you got to do. You do like in um, what's the marked for death where you put like a cow's tongue and you nail, it on, the front door. nail it on the front door. Like, try anything. Right? Uh, is there like there's there's no like critter removal or you can't go and like drop a roach bomb. <laughs> Called out Turtle there to, Man. Yeah. 
to live get him action. out of there. Live Remember action, that guy? let him come get him. What was the other guy? Like Ted the Exterminator? Yeah. Whatever happened to him? He was like a Kid Rock knockoff. I don't think. I don't know. I think he's because I was looking into that. Turtle Man's still alive. He still does his show on YouTube. But he does. Banjo, the, his buddy, passed away. Oh, but no Turtle shocker. Man got messed up, and almost died from cutting a limb. He was trimming or pruning trees and got mollywopped and almost got done in while he's working on well, trees. Clear, you heard me. I, I heard you, but I don't understand what you just said. What what happened? What does that mean? He's like trimming it, trees and got mollywopped. Yeah, the limb released. <laughs> and, of course, he's shocker. He's not like a guy that does a lot of bucking. Like, he's not one that's known for felling trees. He's and, not dexterous. He's yeah, not he's spry. not doing a lot of lumber work as you buck him down. And so this limb made swung down. He, he failed his dexterity save <laughs> yeah. and he got molly whopped. Knocked him down. I can just picture, you've seen them all on Instagram where those guys just get slapped right off a ladder whenever they're up there trimming trees. Oh, yeah. I'm, yeah. A, I'm picturing that's what happened to him. It messed him up. I think men don't calculate the dangers of ladders. I mean, huh? like literally like 5,000 men a Are year. Are you saying this into a mirror? I don't get on ladders. I never get on ladders. But he don't calculate shit either, y'all. <laughs> I'm saying I think guys underestimate ladders. Like more people are hurt off ladders than just about yes. anything else. And you see people. Anything you get off the ground, it don't matter, right? You can fall. Don't do that. Right? Yeah. They make fun of people from being scared of heights. It's like that's called common sense. That's exactly what it is. Hey, I got to share something with you that come from across the pond from the land down under. This goes all the way back to 2009. Is this from Logan? No, 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 no. This, no, no. This is an Australian thing that went down. So like I said, now you got to take this into consideration from 2009, but I like where this goes. Listen, it says, my tail takes place a few weeks back while camping in the bush. This was my first break in several months from work as I now a roadie for international bands like Pink and Nickelback. <laughs> yeah. I decided to go camping with two of my mates up in the bush for a few days, far away from the world as possible. Now I'm an experienced bushman and camped in the bush many times over the years. We heard about a place way out at the back of a small town named Kogel in northern uh, New South Wales at the back of Mount Lindsay. The locals call it Yowie country. A Yowie is an Australian equivalent of Bigfoot, an aboriginal mystic creature like the Bunyip. So just before the entrance to Kogel in the gateway to the national park, after a few hours of driving, we finally found the old road that led to our purposed camping site. It was located on an old, disused logging trail, so not many people, in fact, no one, goes anywhere near this area, which made it better for us. So we left the truck five miles from where we were camping, and we made our way up through the dense forest along the barely recognizable track, avoiding snakes and jumping ants. Yes, we have to jump ants, or we have ants that jump and attach themselves to you and sting you. Man, I'm telling you, man, Australia's got some wicked Dude, animals. it's just looking for a way to kill you every chance it gets. Now, before we found our site, all this was going on, right? So these things are jumping around there. So it took about 20 minutes to set all this up. Tarpaulin over the branches to prevent rain from getting us wet. But we were in a drought. But like they said, old habits are hard to break. I will say this. If you don't put your rain fly on or your rain tarp up on a nice sunny evening, it will rain that night. It's just the way it works. It's the way right? it works, yeah. Yeah, it's just that's the fun stuff for you. Says a pit to bury our beer in to keep it cool. See? Hell yeah. Yeah. So that's how you do it in the bush. Dig a hole, bury your beer in the ground. We also bury food as well, and we have a fire pit. So we gathered wood and all this stuff, and we're ready for a good night of playing cards and drinking beer, just hanging out and having a good time. <clears throat> so it says that the night was clear, as I remember, and hot. No moon, but the stars were like little eyes peering down at us. 
I had to go to use the restroom, and so like an old lizard, I stumbled off with a torch into the brush, hearing the lads calling out to me, saying, Beware of the boogeyman. I was more concerned about the, the death adders and brown snakes. Easy. Look, y'all, if we're all camping and we're in Australia, I'm peeing right next to where we're all standing. So I'm y'all peeing just get in used my pants, it. right? I'm just going to stand right there. We're going to just carry on Inland taipans, the fear snake. Yeah. No, no, I'm not doing that. Right? It says, never mind the boogeyman. So as I was doing my business and gazing at the stars, a strange and horrible s- smell, <laughs> like something rotting, overwhelmed me. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's you saw a snake. Sorry, Ken. That was just me. Sorry about that. My bad. My bad. Yeah. What if you you ate? They were eating that smoked guana they were eating from dinner earlier. Go (laughs) in. Like as if someone let out a little gas that smelled so bad, and it made my eyes burn and water. So I stumbled back, gagging. But as I was stumbling back to the campsite, I thought I heard a deep growl. Like when your stomach rumbles and you've had nothing to eat, but it was louder. Yeah, there's the smell, too. The air, the hair on the back of my neck rose as I quickly hurried back to the campsite. Well, maybe, so the, I, maybe the Yowie just needs to take a little AG1 or something. His stomach's upset. I mean, if our stomachs get upset, why couldn't theirs? That's right. Well, they would. Right? They're upset on other campers that they've eaten. So it says here that says, I told the other two, and they said that it might have been some animal. So we went back to playing cards. Around 11.45... And I was still just wore out. I got in my sleeping bag and already unrolled and crawled into it, saying goodnight, ready to go. And it wasn't before too long. I was dead asleep. Now, I don't know how long I was asleep, but the three of us were suddenly awoken by the strangest, spookiest, loudest, piercing scream that I've ever heard. It was not human. In fact, it was inhuman. We sat up and looked at each other when we heard the loud crashing coming towards our campsite. Uh Uh-oh. Like a bulldozer ramping through the bush. Whatever the hell this was, it was big. And then I saw it. Something massive, well-built and coming crashing through the forest. Now, I couldn't make out the details, but it looked strangely like a human or even better, a gorilla. But the smell will haunt me to the end of my days. It was that rotting stench like a corpse. This thing stood over seven foot tall as it came tearing through the campsite and then vanished into the night. We all jumped up, jabbering like madmen about what we had just witnessed. Was it just some hippie that just smoked some potent weed? No, couldn't have been too tall and too well built to be a hippie. This is what this is what said. <laughs> but it smelt like one though. <laughs> I tell you this, none of us slept the rest of the night. I had the hatchet ready while one of my mates had a huge branch. Well, that's going to work. They're not allowed to have guns there, are they? And the other, I don't know what he had, but we all waited until dawn popped its head over the ridge before we left. What we saw in the daylight frightened us to our core. The small saplings were all bent back and snapped. Some of our gear was trampled beyond repair, but we were shaken and stirred by our experience that we drove into town. Now, what we did, or it says we didn't tell the locals about what we saw or heard in case they thought we were crazy. I did find out, though, that a few weeks after we saw what we saw, that someone else had near the same experience only a few miles from there says, I don't know what we saw, but I'm going to put off for camping up there. And I'm thinking that the locals might be right and the indigenous weren't telling stories to scare us, that they really are yowies that exist in this region. Thanks. Man, that's cool. So I love a good Yowie story. Again. Like Kugel, right? I was, right? I, I was doing some Kugel exercises at <laughs> yoga last week. 
Well, just what's so crazy still is there's supposed to be no apes in Australia. None. That's right. Nothing even remotely close that you could pass off for this. Yet there is a seven foot tall stinky monster that three people witnessed run through their stuff. You're very similar with the uh, the skunk apes, right? Yes. And that's what makes it so bizarre that the whole Sasquatch thing is why do people see the same thing on different parts of the globe? It doesn't make any sense. Even in areas that doesn't look like the it, the biology couldn't support a creature that big. Yet they people see there them. They, are. they yep. see them, smell them, hear them. Sometimes, you know, visually see them, the tracks, everything. It's wild, to, man. I don't know. It doesn't make sense, but then again, it does because none of this makes sense. Yeah. Well, if you have an exciting story just like that one or something that you've heard on this show and you'd like to share with the listeners, do not hesitate. Email us, expandedperspectives at yahoo.com. You can call the show, 888-393-2783. That's 888-393-BRUD. Don't forget... If you want to see Cam and I, we're going to be at the Paranormal Roundtable's second annual Dogman Cryptid Conference, September 2nd through the 3rd in White Settlement at the convention center there in Fort Worth. VIP tickets are available. There's a limited number of VIP tickets. And uh, when you do that, you can get an exclusive meet and greet at a catered diner with the guest speakers. Uh, you can get front row preferred seating. You receive a special swag bag. There's going to be speakers there like Nick Redfern, Lyle Blackburn, Ken Gerhard, Christopher Garantano, Josh Turner, and Cam and I. So we'll be Word. there. You can go to evenbright.com. You can Google Paranormal Roundtable's second annual Dogman Cryptid Conference, or you can just go to the show notes. I'll put links to it in there. There, but you need to come check it out. Let's not forget about our sponsors, ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy by visiting expressvpn.com slash expanded. Do it today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash expanded. And you get an extra three months for free. ExpressVPN.com slash expanded. And if y'all want a free year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs, super simple here too. Take ownership of your health, y'all. Go to drinkag1.com slash expanded to get all the good good that we offer. That's right, folks. That's about all the time we have for this episode. Please be safe out there. Till next time, I'm Kyle. He's Cam. Peace, y'all. Peace, y'all.